Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported at Les Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're speaking with Dr. Lewis B. Gordon about his most recent book, Fear of Black Consciousness. You know, we get into this in the discussion, but it covers so many things kind of radiating out of the question of Black consciousness. It's about philosophy. It's obviously about Blackness. It's also about politics. It's about economics. And it's about existentialism. And a quick tease for our listeners at the jump here, we also discuss uh, Dr. Gordon's very interesting reading of the final scene of the movie Black Panther. That's right. It's a really wide-ranging book. Dr. Gordon is a philosopher and really is, you know, I think one of those people that can almost like digress and talk about any subject in a variety of ways. So he makes a very interesting guest and um, maybe we should get to the show. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. We have Lewis R. Gordon with us on the line today. Lewis is the head of the philosophy department at the University of Connecticut at Storrs. He's also the author of a number of books and articles on the study of racial consciousness and black existentialism, among other topics, many of which have been reprinted and translated around the world. He is the honorary president of the Global Center for Advanced Studies and former president of the Caribbean Philosophical Association, for which he now serves as the chairperson of awards and global collaborations. Dr. Gordon joins us today to talk about his latest book, Fear of Black Consciousness. The book explores contemporary racism in its long historical production, refracted through the question of a movement from black consciousness with a lowercase b, a kind of subjectivity that renders a subject immobilized by an externally imposed suffering and negative self-image, to capital B black consciousness, an active and more liberatory consciousness that sees through the lies of white supremacy and works to build a better and more democratic society. He examines these weighty topics through sustained readings of popular film and culture, including Jordan Peele's Get Out and Marvel's Black Panther. I'm sure we'll get to those readings in just a moment, but first, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Gordon. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. And I have to tell you, I'm delighted to be here for another reason, which is I'm actually a fan of the show. Oh, (laughs) we're always glad to hear it. Flattery will get you everywhere. That's so nice. No, no, but it's actually true. We listen to it all the time. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Louis. Thank you. I want to start with the biggest question that I think a listener might have who is unfamiliar with your work and who might not have had a chance to even glance at the book. But what are we talking about when we talk about Black consciousness? The question of Black consciousness requires talking about Black and talking about consciousness. Now, consciousness is very abstract, so let's, why don't we just start with Black? Most of the time we talk about Black today, people immediately go to racialize Black, and which would be very strange to a child, because children think, wait, well, Black a color? Or, uh, isn't Black all these other? And some people would say, I, you know, a lot of people who are called Black just don't look like that color. So that's very weird. So when we're talking about racialized Black, The thing we should bear in mind is that there was no reason historically for any people to have thought of themselves as white, black, or any other thing. They may have thought of themselves in things like cinnamon color or pink or whatever other things that actually look like stuff in the world. But at a certain point, a group of people decided to dominate another group of people, exploit them, 
And in order to do it, it's always easier to dominate people if you convince yourself they're not really people. Because as we know, you could think of good friends. They could hang out, they call each other by their proper names. But if they begin to get into a fight, suddenly pejorative names come in. And these are processes of dehumanizing them. Before you know it, B words and all kinds of other words come in if there are two women arguing and two dudes or whatever. So that's the first part, right? That whiteness, blackness, all that stuff in terms of race was made. People of Africa thought of themselves as Yoruba, Ibu, Wolof, Oza. That sound you hear is the right way to pronounce it. Gives you an idea of language all the way through Luo, Kokoyos, lots of terms. Now, that's one thing. Similarly, a lot of people didn't say white. You know, they thought of Irish, Gaelic, you know, Germanic, whatever terms they may use, Celts, Franks, etc. So that's the one thing. Now, alongside that were other things like enslavement, colonialism, etc. But not all cases of people being made black were experiences of being enslaved, but all of them were experiences of colonization. So that's one thing. And what colonization is, is when, again, another group of people take over another group of people and try to disempower them and ultimately create a relationship where ultimately all the rights go to the people who dominate them. So that's one thing. Now, if we talk about consciousness, consciousness is a little more complicated. What consciousness basically is, is this very unusual relationship that living things can have with reality. And that is we come into awareness that there is something other than ourselves out there. So consciousness is always the realization of something off something other than the self. And those relationships that we have that we call consciousness, they can take many forms. We could be conscious of how other people think of us. And that is where that racialized consciousness is dominated by the dominator. So that's where you could think of yourself as lowly, inferior, or even worse, not human at all. And what that does, though, is it creates something to the people who dominate. Because you see, for consciousness, even to make sense, there has to be existence. Now, people say, well, what is that? Well, the word existence is, in shorthand, is to stand out. If you couldn't stand out, you wouldn't be aware that you exist, and nobody else would be aware you exist. In fact, that's what the word means. Ex, out, sistera, stand, stand out. However, if you're just a thing, you're not standing out. You're just there. And only... Things that are conscious of you would notice that. Now, what's weird is there is this model of being a thing that some people call being, being something. And one thing problematic is when people who dominate other people begin to set up a whole system of domination, they want to fix it and they end up fixing themselves. So in effect, they're eliminating their own existence by trying to turn others into things. So it means already all forms of colonization are systems of dehumanization simultaneously of those dominated and those who are doing the dominating because they have to lie to themselves about their existence. And so that's the first part. So you have black being made into a thing that also makes whiteness into a thing. And that's why it's makes people talk about black and white. But that's not how human beings are. That's not how the world is. In fact, human beings are not even beings. 
What we are are activities, we're efforts, we're projects. We are, in other words, technically speaking, and in many languages, we are properly verbs. And we're always becoming. And the lie is to try to treat us as if we are fixed and have already become. And so that's the very short version of it, but that's the basic thing. But as you could imagine, with that basic thing, there are those who could come to believe things that are false. What I just described, the consciousness part is true, but the thing part, the whiteness and the initial blackness stuff, those are pleasing falsehoods. They're pleasing for the dominator. They're not particularly pleasing for the dominated, but some among the dominated may say, if my life has to be this despicable, there must be a reason for it. And some would come to believe it must be because there's something wrong with them. And that is what many commentators from Antonia Fermin in Haiti to W.B. Du Bois in the United States, many people have talked about that is the lowercase black double consciousness. That is where you're conscious of yourself through the eyes of those who diminish you. And if you believe it, then there's nowhere to go. You're locked. You don't belong. And in fact, I call that black melancholia. It's where you're indigenous to a world that made you into a thing that tells you you don't belong in it. <laughs> so that's the negative one. And you can't retrieve because it doesn't actually exist, the thing that would like make you whole within that schema. Correct. That's that, like the melancholic loss is that you're stuck in this relation because you can't retrieve the thing that would end the melancholy. Correct. What happens next is if you accept that, there is nowhere to go. But that means you're a problem. Life, everything around is not good because you're there. And we see this on an everyday level. You're associated with crime, you're associated with perverse activities, you know, all kinds of malfeasance. There's just something wrong with you. However, there's a certain point you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But if this society made, created this identity for me, why should I accept it? And if you take that position, you say, wait a minute, maybe there's something wrong with a society that makes people into problems instead of addressing the problems people face. And at that moment, you have what's called a potentiated double consciousness. That's a term developed by Jane Anna Gordon. And what that is, is the realization that you don't have to accept the society. You as a human being with other human beings now face the obligation of trying to build a better society, one in which human beings could meet each other as human beings instead of things. And then that's how we arrive at kind of at least the potential for capital B Black consciousness. That's a more transformative consciousness that's about building a new world instead of reifying or reforming, perhaps in other words, like the structures of this old world that's producing this lowercase b Black consciousness. Correct. So you said there's this moment when you realize, wait a second, this society is wrong. It has produced me or someone else and other as a problem. And that is not what a human being is. A human being is not a problem. So now I need to move to 
another form of social organization that will properly restore the being to the human being. But what causes that? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the catalyst? Well, the thing to bear in mind is connected to why even write this book in the way I've written it. Because you see, if I'm going to object that we are not treating human beings in the, the world we live in as a human world, we human beings need a human world in which to live, then it's a contradiction to write a dehumanizing book that is just a little dry, you know, looking like a government manual of abstractions. Mm-hmm. So this is why the book goes through very concrete things about lived experiences and also talk about people in the way people actually live. You know, I always say to my students, you know, most written philosophy is not even 1% of what human beings have thought. Most mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. most thinking is like we're doing right now. We're not sitting out writing, we're talking. It's okay. conversation, learning things. And in fact, even though we are at distances from each other, we're physically distant, we are through talking with each other close. And this is the thing. You see, dehumanization, oppression, all those things, they're designed to lie to us, to make us think there's something wrong with us connecting, to being close, to communicating, to being social. And what it does is in these lies, they try to convince us that certain relationships, ways of living are impossible, even though we do them all the time. So one of them is for us to think about ourselves as complete. And the other one is when we think about ourselves in purely causal terms. But if we think back, there have always been, from the moment, let's face it, nobody really buys the idea that they're not a human being. In fact, one of the conundrums is about being a human being is you're born a human being, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to become one. You see that weird thing? (laughs) (laughs) That is what we know. So what happens, this is one of the reasons why all racisms try to infantilize people, for instance, right? It's trying to stop them from becoming adults. So the thing is, from the moment, the first thing to remember is there has never been a passive acceptance of this abuse. There's always been, from the beginning, people fighting, kicking and screaming, creatively using whatever resources they have had to live a life of dignity and respect. That's the first thing. Second, in order to do horrible things to people, you really have to, unless you're just a downright psycho or sociopath, you really have to do a lot of lying to yourself in order to do that. So again, there have always been among people who we designate as colonizers, there have always been people saying, why the hell do we have this colonizing crap? Look what we're doing to people. And one of the ways I talk about this is, for instance, not only through music and poetry and lots of other things, but also through films. And I'm often asked, why the films? Some people think if you talk about a film, you're endorsing it. And I point out, it's not about that. It's because in the past, people read a lot. So you could just say, well, in the book of so-and-so, they said this and that. But today, the texts are mostly films and music, etc. If you think about what's well said in the movie, The Black Panther, as an example, a lot of people miss the point. Killmonger, the character Killmonger, kept repeating the mantra, you either conquer or be conquered. That is a false thesis. There's another thing you could do. Why not get rid of a world that depends on conquerors and being conquered? If you get that out of the way, then you have a world of people who are not conquered and conquerors. Now, that that has been what a lot of people have been struggling for. There's always another way, but the difficult issue is the commitment. And I think the real question we have to ask ourselves is, what was it that made 
those courageous people in the past do what they did. And the thing is, they weren't courageous in the sense that they beat their chest and say, I am courageous. Many of them were scared. Many of them thought what they were doing will never work. And that's why I tell stories in the book about people who acted on what seemed like impossible conditions. For instance, there are a lot of not only African-Americans today or Afro-Caribbeans, Afro-South American people, people, or even if you pick in India, because I talk about blackness globally, whether it's Shudras or Untouchables, or if you talk about quoting people of Australia or Maori, just there have always been people who faced a situation where they were told, what are you doing? It's impossible for you to make any change in this system, in these conditions. Yet we their descendants, and not only those who are black, but many people. There are some people who are white who have no idea that their ancestors were these people. There are people where we know with absolute certainty that we're here today and that you and I can have this conversation because they acted, and but they did not know we would be able to do this. So this becomes the rather interesting thing. I think what's more interesting is not really so much what caused them right away. The question is the paradox, the existential question of, we can't even imagine in their situation our ability to act, yet they did. And one of the things I point out that enabled them to act is radical love. Because you see, hate is easier than love. It's really easy to tear things down. But it takes a lot of love and courage to build things. And that effort is you have to do that through a commitment to something greater than yourself. And that is something that is very, very difficult to cause. It's a form of a commitment that is connected to the ability to love that which is not identical with yourself. Colonialism tells us about narcissistic love. It tells you you could only love those who are like you. But that's mm. not actually the history of our species. We have the ability to love not only people who are not like us, we have the ability to love other living forms that are not like us. And that extraordinary ability requires a willingness to act without having guarantees for the outcome. And there's so many people who died actually not worrying about a world that told them they failed because ultimately their act of dignity and freedom was the commitment from that love to act. So radical love is a crucial element. And some people may say that sounds a little wishy-washy, but they don't really get it. If you have narcissistic love, you become a politician because you just want to you know, gouge the nation and get whatever you can run off with or whatever. Hmm. It's easy. And you just want to help out your type. But there's another kind of relationship to power where you're trying to create the possibilities for people you'll never meet, you'll never know. They may not ever even like you, but your actions can be such that you and the communities you work with have set the conditions for them, those people who emerge, to look back and say, thank God you acted. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Louis B. Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. 
have Sheila Hetty on the line with us today. Sheila's latest book is a novel. It's called Pure Color. And Sheila is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Sheila, what book are you going to recommend? Well, the last book I read, I really loved. It's out in May. It's called Either Or by Elif Batanin. And everyone who knows that name knows what a brilliant person she is and how funny she is. And I just think this is her best book. It's follows Selen, that same character from her last book, The Idiot, Mm -hmm. in university. And there's just something different, however, about this book. Like it really made me think differently about heterosexuality. There was something about this book that that makes it seem completely absurd in a way that that just made me think about culture differently in all sorts of ways and and love and I don't know, it just sent it sent my brain into a million different places. And I think it's a wonderful book. So there's my recommendation. I actually just read that book. And oh, what did you think of it? Oh, I also really loved it. And it struck me that like, you know, you don't read so many books where it felt to me like the majority a majority of the text is a question. Yeah. You know, that Celine is really comfortable asking questions, which not a lot of people are, not a lot of characters are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that is part of like what makes her such a, I mean, such a wonderful companion, but also can kind of like reshape how you think of things. She's constantly questioning them. Yes, exactly. And the conversations that they have are like in university, the university kind of conversations, the best kind of conversations you can ever have just about the foundations of everything. And um, yeah, those were my favorite parts uh, for sure. Also. Yeah. It's a great book. So it's a hearty recommendation for both of us, even though I'm who cares what I think, but um, (laughs) Sheila, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yes. It's called either or which is a title she took from Kierkegaard's book, Either Or. I love how she does that. I mean, it's who who does that, um, taking her titles from such great works of, of literature and philosophy. So the title is Either Or, and the author is Elif Batuman, B-A-T-U-M-A-N. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sheila. You're welcome. We've been talking to Sheila Hetty. Her latest book is called Pure Color. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Louis B. Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying about radical love is familiar to me from the archives of Black feminist thought, you know, and I'm thinking here of the Combahee River Collective Statement, the writing of Audre Lorde, the work of Michelle Wallace and Barbara Christian, many others. And that's work that really embraces the possibility of a radical or we might say reparative love that can get us out of an unending conflict in which all people are destroyed and or dehumanized. Um, So that kind of radical love, right, is it's about making change and helping us see the possibility of a more egalitarian world, a more open world against the kind of stuckness that we might otherwise feel in a world structured by conflict and dehumanization. And you know that this brings me to your very interesting analysis of the final scene in the movie Black Panther, which you read in such a different way than I read it and I'm sure most audience members read it. You know, so whereas I and I think others saw Killmonger's death as forfeiting the possibility of radical black liberation in the film and this would be specifically a kind of black American radical liberationist impulse. 
while embracing T'Challa's openness to the systems of world government that can so often work against those who are marginalized, you kind of saw the opposite, right? So you saw T'Challa as the embodiment of actually a truly reparative and radical democratic intervention, a kind of leader who acts for and with the community, in other words. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that reading? You know, was that the way that you saw it in the theater or was that kind of a, an understanding or a reading that arose after you saw the movie? Oh, that's the way I saw it in the theater. But it I was should, immediately first oh, yeah. take. Oh yeah, and I. But but here's the reason why. I mean, I'm not just a philosopher of many things, but I also studied classics and ancient myths throughout the book. Hmm. You may notice every time I talked about a film, I, I have to meet people where they're at. So I talk about the film, but do you notice I went through layers to show the myths on which they're based and the and etymology a, of names and the etymology yeah. of names and so forth. So, for instance, many people, for instance, didn't know that Black Panther was a, was created out of Jewish myths. And then, uh, and then from there, a lot of people don't know that Jewish myths were created out of ancient East African myths. And so I showed which exact myths they're, they're, they are. But the first thing is, your observation around Black feminist thought is right on point, because Black feminist thought is a form of Black consciousness. But the mistake, a lot of people don't realize, for instance, if we look at Black Lives Matter, I make the connection between Black Lives Matter and not only the varieties of movements all the way back to Anna Julia Cooper, but all the way back even to Frederick Douglass's mother, Ariel Bailey. I make that connection in terms of radical love, and I argue that Black Lives Matter is actually not about saying Black lives are better. It's pointing out that in a world that said Black lives didn't even matter, that Black Lives Mattering is actually a, a call for democracy. It's right, that's the thing. It's yeah. a call for democracy. Now, once we understand that political point, that we're looking for democracy. That's ultimately what this is about. If we look at the Black Panther film, I actually argue several things, but one of the things I argue is that the hero in Black Panther isn't actually T'Challa. It's actually Wakanda. The idea of a political, that's what makes it different from other superhero films. The standard superhero film is the retelling of the myth of the, 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 the son trying to get rid of the, the, the older man so he could get the woman. That's pretty much a lot of them in a nutshell. But what's striking in the Black Panther, there are certain interesting political things. There are some things I have problems with and I mentioned them, but the interesting political thing is that the physical powers and even the mental powers that whoever becomes the Black Panther has, ultimately that is in the service of a political responsibility. Mm, mm. And that's why... What's amazing is how here's a person who can in a second just rip your head off. They're in that city, so to speak, that that city state, the citizens can make fun of the king. And they do. Right. There's yes, a, you point this out. Is it it's a leveling, right, of like the social playing field. Yeah. And there are all kinds of things, the role of women, all kinds of things, the way they stand up, councils, all kinds of things. But in a world of a tyrant. It's what the tyrant says goes. And every embodiment of the Black Panther does have the potential to become a tyrant. Now, what's interesting is at the level of myth, what I found interesting in this film is that there is an internal critique of Wakanda. And the internal critique is, you see, the story is, it, it starts off telling you about the very first Black Panther. And the very first Black Panther went through what I was just talking about with radical love 
and the existential contingency of needing the performance without knowing in advance outcome. The first individual, Bashenga, who ate the herb, right? People thought he died. It was poisonous. But he was genetically unique that when they buried him, he resurrected as this powerful creature. So we already have a resurrection myth, okay? We got that. The conservative point is to say, oh, it worked. Let's just keep doing that. And they did it for a long time. And it made them a conservative insular society. They failed to understand that they had an obligation as a citizen of the world. And T'Challa, following that tradition, remember, he was buried in the clay, in the dirt, etc. But what's interesting is after the situation with Killmonger, when Killmonger defeats him and is, becomes the new panther and he's buried in the earth and so forth, the crucial symbolic thing to pay attention to is that when he takes the herb, he's not buried in soil, in dirt. He's buried in snow, in ice, which is a symbol of water. And when he's resurrected, and the rest of the plot goes on, people have seen the movie, this T'Challa understands that each generation has to do things on different terms because they have different challenges. That's why it was not only that he learned. See, Killmonger's death wasn't in vain. He learned that they have to get out of the insularity, T'Challa. And he also, even Killmonger said, throw me in the sea like my ancestors. You see the water point? The water, it goes all the way back to ancient African myths around Isis, Osiris, and Horus. I talk about this. But the main thing to understand with resurrection myths is that the one who is born from water is the one who represents change. Because water is not only a feminine symbol, in antiquity, especially in ancient African society, water mirrored the sky. From their point of view, the sky is like a big ocean. So it's water, sky. And in fact, in ancient African myths, in European myths, uh, anything that's on top has to be masculine. So the Greeks took the, the African myths and turned them upside down. You see? So in the African myth, the female was on top, right? And, and, um, and basically, the change in it right, my masculinizing her, if we understand her as water and the earth as, as masculine now, we begin to realize the problem was that constant burying of these men in soil, in earth, that, kept the, that did not open a change. So the new T'Challa is actually a fusion of the feminine and the masculine, and he's now open instead of closed. And this is one of the reasons why he's now going out into the world. But we noticed he does something very important. Although he does address the UN, he goes to the youth in the very neighborhood Killmonger was from. Because you see, the youth represent possibility. And this is what this is all about. You see, we could talk all day long about racism, etc. We could talk about how horrible it is. We could talk about all of that. But if we fail to take into account that it's a political phenomenon that requires human actions to change it. If we fail to account for that, we fail to think about possibility. And so at the end of the day, uh, we're, just, uh, we're just hot air and wasting our time 
if we don't come down to the basic fact that we have to do something and we have to do something rooted, rooted in possibility that transcends us. This is a little different than, than the previous question, but I wonder if you could talk about radical love personally, if you have witnessed it in your own life. I don't really mean in a large political sense, but sort of larger than life figures that that have displayed that for, for the world in some cases, but maybe even in smaller ways. You told a really lovely story before we started the show about your grandmother and I wonder if there's instances of this of this thought, but rendered in your own experience. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things I was saying to some of my students the other day is a problem in this society and a lot of European society is we go to these grandiose, you know, ways mm-hmm. of talking about love and ethics, etc. One of the reasons I like Kung Tsui, whom we know is Confucius is that he understood that we have to work on how to be good human beings on an ordinary, mundane level. And so, you know, I was telling my students about, for instance, how you treat a waiter at a restaurant or a waitress, or if you go to a food mm-hmm. truck, somebody who says, oh, I'm sorry, I stepped in front of you. Um, is, and the person, he said, it's okay, go ahead. And then the person has a nice conversation and move on. But in terms of my everyday level, my mother, my father, my my cousins, my aunts, I saw that, you know, this is one of the reasons I get irritated about these ways of portraying Black communities that just have us locked in pathology and suffering and despair. I love being a Black person. I love the music we listen to. I love the food we eat. And when I say a Black person, I'm not talking about any um, narrow, reductive, purist version, because the Black world I'm from, we're, we're diverse, we're complex, we're multilingual. And in that world, there's so much difference. Uh, I told you that my great-grandmother was an Irish Tamil woman. My great-grandfather was a Liberian, you know, six-foot-ten man who, you know, and my my grandmother... He was six-foot-ten? Yeah, he was huge. He was tall for that time. Yeah. <laughs> I thought and, you said uh, six-foot-two earlier. No, ten, That's amazing. No, he was big, and she was <laughs> short. She was five-foot-one. And, uh, and... Um, oh, wow. And their love, the fact that, you know, they... She was 20 when they met. He was in his 50s. And I said she would have been lucky to get a good 10 years out of the man by given those days. You know, that's more than 100 years ago. But in, uh, but in fact, uh, he died at 110. And she died uh, six months after he died. She spent the six months visiting the fruits of their marriage and then said she was going to die. And nobody believed her. The physicians checked her. She was perfectly healthy. They said, this woman's just a little nuts. But two days later, she died. And she died because she had already made up her mind. She didn't want to live without him, but she wanted to have an affirmation of their love. Uh, The thing about it is, but I see it in other ways. You see, my mother was a, a, she was the product of not only my, um, the daughter of that uh, woman I just mentioned, uh, Beatrice Norton and that man, Uriah Owen. Uh, My grandmother, she married a man who was from Jews from um, Jerusalem. They left in the 19th century. So at that time, it was just called Palestine. And uh, they had my mother. And uh, and my mother, uh, the man she had me with, uh, he was the product of a Chinese woman and a black Jamaican man. And complicated circumstances led to my father and his brothers being homeless as children and my grandmother becoming a concubine for a man from Hong Kong and all kinds of other things. So their lives, in other words, sucked. (laughs) It looked really bad. 
Yet what was extraordinary was my mother and my father, they're just amazing. Their capacity to love. My mother, her father died when she was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. My mother took on things you wouldn't, couldn't believe. When my mother came to this country, she came to the United States from Jamaica with $5 in her pocket. She was a very beautiful woman who faced every kind of sexual harassment and every kind of racist thing you could imagine. But she kept on, she never, ever had hate. She understood that people mattered, so much so that when she was tragically killed, uh, what is this? Um, wow. Yeah, 16 years ago. Without even advertising anything, nearly 2,000 people showed up. And everyone had a story of what my mother did to help them. My mother loved to go to graduations. She went to the graduations of every cousin, every kid, even neighbors, even people in her union. They were like, what's this woman doing? Who's Which relative? No, she just likes graduations. Imagine the love of just loving to be watch people at a moment in their life when they've grown. That is love. I, another very a version of that I see is in jazz musicians. I play I play a variety of music. Well, yeah, but in the seventies I got to know a lot of classic jazz musicians, great jazz musicians, and they were models of what I'm talking about in two ways. The first way is in jazz performance. In jazz performance, you could put any group of jazz musicians together, count off, and they'll play. You don't even need to tell them which song. But when they play, each musician takes on the task of trying to bring out the best performance of the other musician. You see, that's related to what I said about my mother. In other words, when it's their turn to play, that's what you do. When I play drums or piano, I want to make sure I do what will make the other musician play better. Think of a society if our goal, if we organize our society to bring out the best in our citizens, for people to have the opportunities to do their best performance. Instead of the kind of narcissistic, competitive view of blocking people, where in cases somebody who's doing the most mediocre performance doesn't care, that person just gets to have the show to himself or herself. But the second thing that I noticed with those musicians uh, is that they, not only do they dress with a kind of dignity and commitment, but many of them, what you don't, many people don't know about them, is a lot of those musicians would go into poor neighborhoods and often just teach people music for free. And one of the best examples of this I, I saw was not only a thing called Jazzmobile in New York and Harlem in the 70s, but I remember one time I was in Harlem, it was near 138th Street, and I was with my friends and we heard this great jazz coming out of a dive, a nasty bar and this is new york from the 70s so nobody's going to check you if, if you're <laughs> underage which is great so i got to see everything so we all went in there and my jaw dropped because in this dingy bar on a monday night no cover charge just there was art blakey and the jazz messengers oh, that's incredible yeah they performed that weekend and they stayed an extra day to be in a poor neighborhood playing so, you know what I'm saying? So those, That's incredible. Everybody can get the art. And at the end, he got up and he talked with me and just walked around. And I was, that is radical love. It's not just about, it, there's a point at which you have to put your ego out of the way and say you can contribute something for, for the world to grow. 
You know, as you talk about this, I'm reminded, um, and I think you'll be into this, of the work of Claude McKay, who is one of my favorite authors. And his novels capture a unity in difference that I think really corresponds to what you're talking about in the play that jazz musicians do with one another and that kind of radical love. I mean, that's a very hard thing to do, right? And I'm thinking in particular of the writing of Sam Delaney and others whose work interrogates a kind of limit that they see or understand in the amount of difference that human beings can wrestle with. So the idea here being that human beings naturally seek what's similar to themselves, right? They look for sameness as a kind of protection. But the reality is that all of us are very different. And in order to fit into a, quote, unified society, we have to amputate parts of ourselves to fit into that greater whole. But McKay, and I think this is part of what you're getting at with Radical Love, is after a way of taking everyone's individual, unique skills and pulling them together in a radiant whole that doesn't diminish those differences, but rather sees them as points of connection. I mean, is that the difficult task that we're setting for ourselves? And you know, how do we do it? Correct. Absolutely. In fact, the big, the big, here's the lie. The lie is a false dilemma imposed upon us, which is the idea that there's one size that fits all, and that size is we must be risk-free and safe. But that mm. requires never encountering difference and possibility. But the other extreme, the mistake we make, is then to take the position, for instance, the way some anarchists do or some people who imagine radicalism, is to not have any connection to things that can be thematized. But in fact, mm. our condition as a human being, human beings don't have a nature. We're not a being. We have a condition. A condition is the condition of possibility. And this is one of the reasons why you may notice in the book, I talk about the Brazilian film, The City of God. You know, the film by Fernando mm -hmm. Morales. Mm -hmm. and yes, Kaira. towards the end of the book, yeah. Yeah, but I talk about it because of the metaphor, right, between the protagonist, rocket, mm -hmm. even the term rocket, tend to take flight from the earth. But as you know, if a human being goes, goes up, you know, we need to come back down, right? <laughs> but there's also the fact that a chicken, there's an important metaphor with a chicken in that film because chicken are retites, they're, they're flightless birds. They can leap they can get up, but they don't soar. But nevertheless, they have those wings. And that's part of what we are. You know, the human, in most languages, words for human come down to words for dirt and earth, earthbound. But at the same time, we can leap. And that's what we are. We have to understand that it's a false dilemma to think that we must be stuck with one versus the other. We're the constant dialectic, the constant interchange, the constant striving always to be something beyond ourselves, while at the same time appreciating what we have to offer from what we're given from when we're born. And that's why we're born human, but we also are becoming human. That is the thing. And the thing we lose when we talk about race a lot of times, we lose sight of the fact that race, racism, all those issues are ultimately about human beings. And too many people who talk about racism don't interrogate what it means to be a human being. The better we can understand that, the better we can understand our responsibility for their existence, the more we can also understand our responsibility to and for and with each other. 
What a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Louis. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure getting to meet you all. And, you know, my wife and I, Jane, we listen to this all the time. So it's such a delight. It's such a pleasure. That's so nice. Thank you so much, Louis. And congratulations again on the book. We've been speaking with Louis R. Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.